welcome to family. Uh, welcome to a community of hope and life. Um, we say this all the time around here, but we don't have a vision for church. We dream for a city. What a legend you are. Thanks a lot. At the life of Jesus, we come to every person and part of our city. A um, couple of quick things just to, to let you know about before we jump in this morning. Um, Sunday the 7th of October, uh, in our Sunday the 7th Jericho gathering, we will be doing baptisms. So if you want to get baptized, if you've been thinking about getting baptized, and know lots of you have been asking questions about baptism, uh, can you email laura at laggingvalleyvineyard.com? Uh, we'll be doing baptisms Sunday the 7th of October, and we'd love to uh, get you more information about that. If you just want to find out what's involved and uh, how we do that, and just email Laura. We'll connect you with all those kind of things, and you can, you can decide. So Sunday the 7th of October is baptisms. And then um, uh, men in the room, I need to have a very stern word with you all. Um, so we have six spaces left. <laughs> six spaces left. <laughs> <laughs> Six spaces left on Compass. Um, we have a disproportionate amount of women doing Compass this year, and uh, that's, that's really great for them. But lads, you're kind of letting the side down a bit. So um, we have six spaces left. If you've been thinking about Compass, kind of really encourage you to sign up to finish this Friday. Um, email us. We'd love to get you connected, particularly guys. Um, that would be really, really helpful. And I think that's everything I want to say before we jump in. Yeah. So next, next Sunday we'll be... Uh, Launching tribes again. Wave at me if you've signed up for a tribe. Okay, right. Most of you need to get moving on that. Um, James is going to explain a wee bit more next Sunday about why we do tribes. But let me just say this, that if this is the only environment where you are engaging with church and you want to grow in your faith, um, that's not going to work. And I can't probably be more clear than, than that. Uh, tribes is a place where we get out of rows, we move into circles, and we talk about what's going on in our lives, and we talk about the challenges, pray for each other, encourage each other, all that kind of stuff. So um, really, really encourage you today, lagvalvinar.com, on tribes, you can go and see. We have like 10 tribes, I think, meeting all across uh, the region. Most of the leaders are really nice people. And um, I'll let you figure out which ones aren't. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, the people that are leading and hosting tribes are people that we love and trust, and uh, we'd love you to connect uh, with those. So you can go online, sign up whenever you go home. Tribes is a place for us to journey with other people as we seek to worship and apprentice ourselves to Jesus. Christianity is about worship and apprenticeship, and it only makes sense when we understand both of those things. Worship and apprenticeship. And last week, James did a brilliant job teaching about worship. And uh, the question that he framed that around was, uh, really, it's not about if you worship, but what you worship. We all worship. We all, every single one of us worship. Some of us worship our bodies. That right, Sam? <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm just playing. But the reality is we all worship. We all worship. Uh, some of us worship money, that we think that if we could just figure out a way to get more money in the bank account, then our lives and all the problems and struggles and stress and strife, it would go away if we could just somehow find a way to eke out a little bit more money in our day-to-day -day and our week-to-week. -week. Um, the question isn't if we worship, it's, it's who or what we worship. And life, I promise you, works better whenever you worship Someone who can actually deliver on the things they promise. And that person is Jesus. And for us here at the Vineyard, we believe that worship 
and surrender are inseparable. Gathering here on a Sunday to sing and pray and connect and listen and respond to the Word of God is, of course, worship, but it's kind of a, a narrow slice of the pie. It's only, it's only a part. We truly worship when we surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, willingly inviting Him to rule over and through every part of our lives as King. And our worship is not measured by our emotion or our volume. Our worship is measured by our surrender. Worship is measured by our surrender. And James said it well last week when he said our best days are on the other side of surrender. Whenever we yield, whenever we give up, whenever we say, okay, Jesus, be king, rule over my life. Our best days are on the other side of surrender. You can catch up more fully on that on our podcast. But the other word I used this morning was apprentice or apprenticeship. Christianity fundamentally is about worship and apprenticeship. Dallas Willard famous uh, theologian and philosopher said this, there is no problem in the human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. That's a fairly major statement, right? Just wave at me if you've got some problems going on in your life right now. Just me? Okay, good, thanks. Some people have both hand on it, yeah. That's probably me, if I'm being honest. This is me right here. I've got problems, challenges, all that sort of stuff. Dallas Willard says, there's no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. I just want to... Um, just before your brain goes a million places, just imagine for a second if that were actually true. What if that were actually true? I had the privilege of uh, spending some time with actually Dallas Willard in the, in the States and uh, one of his um, disciples, I guess, a man named John Ortberg. Some of you will know John Ortberg. He's written lots of books, leads a big church in San Francisco. And uh, John Ortberg said this when he was talking to us about discipleship. He said, I believe discipleship is possible because of Dallas Willard. Not because of his brain or his ideas or his intelligence, because of what I have observed be formed in his life. This statement that there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve was not a an idea or a concept. It was Dallas Willard reflecting on his own life. Fundamentally, Christian discipleship is about apprenticing yourself to Jesus. We, we have a bit of a challenge, I think, here in Northern Ireland when it comes to words like discipleship. Even if you haven't been around church that much, even if you're here for the, for the first time, there's very few people over the age of about 18, 19, or 20 in Northern Ireland that are completely unchurched. Very few. There are some, but very, very few. Most of us, most of our culture is what um, people that write about it would call de-churched. We've been there. We think we understand it, and we thought, that's not for me. And we've disconnected. It's probably one of the most common stories I get when people actually join the vineyard. It's like, well, I grew up in church, and it's a pretty awful experience, and someone dragged me along to this crazy place, and now I, I find myself falling in love with Jesus, and it's amazing. I love it. Um, but one of the problems here in Northern Ireland around things, words like discipleship and just sometimes the idea of Christianity is we assume so much because we think we're familiar with what's really going on. And there's a familiarity that often leads us to miss the point. I'll never forget uh, about a year, I think, after I decided to follow Jesus, um, I was in a bar in uh, Dromore and 
Um, it was kind of big news whenever I decided to follow Jesus, at least in, in Dromore, because my life was kind of uh, pretty notoriously being lived in the opposite direction. Less said about that, the better. And uh, I was in this bar, and I'd ordered a pint, and I was literally about to put the pint on my lips when uh, an old friend literally fought his way across the bar and grabbed my hand and slammed it down on the bar and said, what are you doing? I said, what are you doing? And he said, I, I thought you got good living and stuff. And uh, I kind of played a bit dumb and went, what, what are you talking about? He said, you know, like the whole, like, you know, thing. I'm like, I have no idea. What, 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 what are you talking about? Did you not, like, you know, do that religious thing? And I said, oh, are you talking about Jesus? And he went, maybe. <laughs> and we had a really interesting conversation about the fact that I now follow Jesus said nothing about whether I could be present in this pub having a pint with some friends. It's, it's funny how familiarity and assumption can breed all sorts of things that are so far and foreign, actually, to the scriptures and the story of God. So I wonder what you think it means to be a disciple. I wonder what, what you, a disciple is. I wonder what you would, uh, how you would finish that sentence. I hope you understand that there is no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple of Jesus. I hope you understand that. And if that's news to you, you definitely need to sign up to Compass. One of the blessings of living in an increasingly secular age is that we have to relearn the basic of what it means to be Christian. And that doesn't get more basic than discipleship. Or I think what is a better word for us is apprenticeship. So what does it mean to be an apprentice? Well, if I wanted to become a plumber, right, my wife would tell you I had no hope. But just assume for a second that I decided I want to be a plumber. Here was, this is what my strategy would be, right? I would find the best plumber I could possibly find. I'd ask around all my friends who are in different trades and things. I'd say, who's the best plumber you know? Tell me who the best plumber you can possibly think of is. And then I would go to that guy and I would say, can I become your apprentice? Right? And what that means basically is I would follow that plumber around and I would watch intently how they went about all of their plumbing business. I would uh, look at the different tools that they had. I would look at how they did them. If they were a good, what's the opposite of apprentice? Master? Master plumber? If they were a good master plumber, they would begin to ask me to do little jobs. Be like, okay, Andy, you've seen me do this bit. Now you try it and I'll watch you. And if you make a mistake, they go, no, 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 don't do it that way. Do it this way. And eventually, after probably two decades for me, um, this master plumber might say, Andy, you're ready. You're ready to go out into the big, bad world of plumbing. You've got your tool bag, you've got all of the lessons, and uh, now you can go and be a plumber. That's what it means to be an apprentice, to take instruction from a master and learn to do what they do. Pretty basic, right? The core of the Christian faith is apprenticeship to Jesus, learning to live, think, and do life the way he does. Or another Dallas Willard quote is this. Discipleship is really thinking about what would your life look like were Jesus living it? How would you live, think, and do life if Jesus were living your life? Like going to where you work, surrounded by your crazy neighbors, trying to deal with your crazy mother-in-law. How would... Too, too close, No. I love my mother-in-law. What would your life look like if Jesus were living it? 
That's the goal of apprenticeship to Jesus. To learn to live, think, and do life the way he does. But it's bigger than that too. There's like a backstory that's important for us to, to understand. Just as a plumber knows exactly what his job is, right? So there's a lake, call the plumber, the plumber fixes the lake. You're building a house, the house needs plumbed, the plumber comes and plumbs the house. It's really kind of, it's, it's narrow, it's simple, it's straightforward. This is where I think sometimes we can lose our way. Because what's the, what's the, the mission of Jesus? What's the mission of God? What's he actually doing? Like if the plumber's there to fix a leak, what's Jesus here to do? If, if apprenticeship to Jesus looks like what your life would look like if he was living it, what's he actually trying to do? What does that look like or involve? Jesus has huge sense of clarity on what he is doing. John 5, he says, I only do what I see my father doing. I am only doing what I see my father doing. Jesus was completely sold out to his family business. And that is what theologians call the Missio Dei. Or put into our language, the mission of God. The mission of God. And we need to become apprentices of Jesus so we too can join the family business. But what exactly is the mission of God? So glad you asked. I want to look uh, together briefly this morning, in the time we have left, at two passages, one from Revelation chapter 21 and uh, one from Matthew chapter 14. Don't worry about going there because I'm going to read them really fast. But this is Revelation 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I wonder, have you ever read a story or watched a movie where it wasn't until the end that the whole story made sense. I'm going to read you a movie quote. If you're in the 945, you're disqualified, right? So we're going to play a game. As soon as you figure out what the movie is, I want you to shout it at me, okay? It involves participation, okay? Great, right. So as soon as you figure out what the movie is, just shout it at me, right? Here we go. Name the movie. Here comes the quote. I see an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars, Anybody? Fight Club. Fight Club. Who got it? Big Pete. What a legend. Okay, Fight Club is the movie. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy stuff we don't need. We're the middle children of history. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We have all been raised on television to believe that one day we will all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very annoyed. The actual quote says something else, but you can't read that in a sermon. Of course, it's Fight Club, and this is possibly the most overused sermon illustration in, in history. How many of you have seen Fight Club? Wave at me if you've seen Fight Club. Lots of you, okay. So for any of you who haven't, right, 
um, the, the end, spoiler alert, uh, at the end you find something out that makes the whole rest of the movie make sense. Right? So the movie's about two characters, but at the end you realize it's actually one person who has a split personality thing going on. And the whole movie is really quite confusing until the end, and then you're like, oh my goodness, it all makes sense now. And the second time, if you, for any of you who've watched Fight Club, the second time, it is a completely different experience. The whole way through the movie, from almost the opening scene on the airplane where the two characters meet each other and notice they have the exact same briefcase, you see these signposts to what's really going on through the entire story. That's exactly what's happening here in Revelation 21 and 22. When you read Revelation 21 and 22, the rest of the story begins to make sense. And when you read the rest of the God story with the end in mind, you see signposts all over it. You, you discover that the point of the gospel and the God story is not heaven when we die. That's not the point. That's not in the story. The end of the story is God with us. And once you understand the end, you begin to see the signposts through the whole story from the very beginning. Right at the very core of this thing called the mission of God is his desire to be with us and inviting us to join him in making that a reality for the world. And everything that precedes this moment in Revelation 21 is the outworking of this desire in God's heart to reconnect humanity and creation to him. One of the things I love most about uh, this church family is our commitment to the mission of God modeled in Jesus. I love that we care way more about being the church for the city than growing a church in the city. And I hope you understand the difference in those two things. From Genesis 3 through to Revelation 21, the story has always been about God moving towards us. He wipes away every tear. We look forward to a time when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I grew up in a fairly middle-class, comfortable Northern Irish home. My parents are a little bit quirky, um, but they love me dearly. I was reflecting with a friend last week that I can't remember a single rugby match from when I was about five until I was 18 that my dad wasn't at midweek or weekend. So much so that we just kind of, we took it for granted. Now that I actually have a job, I understand how challenging that actually was um, for, for him. Up until last June, all four of my grandparents were still alive, um, and we've only lost one. Um, my childhood was not marked with pain or with struggle. Why am I telling you that? I don't know if you've ever noticed when you go to Christian conferences, sometimes the people that get up and do this kind of job just seem like they've had the most horrendous life possible. And then they met Jesus and everything became okay. And I often listen going, cheaper I'm about disqualified because, you know, the most challenging thing for me was about third year when Rachel Rogers dumped me. 
And when you're in that context and you talk about this picture in Revelation 21 of no more sickness and death and dying and pain, like it's, it's poetic, but it didn't really connect emotionally to me. It, it wasn't a, this, this hope was, I mean, it's, it's great, it's beautiful, but it was kind of about four years ago, 20th of December, I was on the phone one Saturday morning with a really good friend, and the, the line dropped. And I uh, just thought his battery had run out or something like that, and I got a phone call from his wife later that afternoon to say that he had dropped dead that morning on the phone to me. No underlying health issues, 18-month-old daughter, wife three months pregnant with their second. I will never, ever forget standing in Craig's funeral, worshiping God, looking at his pregnant widow, overwhelmed with the longing for this revelation to become true. A time when there would be no more death, no mourning, no crying, and no pain. A time when God would wipe away every tear. I wonder how about you? That's the mission of God right there. That's what it looks like. A time when there is no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And that time is coming. President Obama uh, came to visit Ireland in 2011. I wonder, do any of you remember the Corrigan Brothers' hit song? There's no one as Irish as Barack Obama. I won't sing it. 2011, Celtic Tiger had completely died, middle of a huge recession, really challenging times for all of us in the West. And Barack Obama spoke all over Ireland, and at one of his speeches, he heralded in his like, powerfully, powerful manner, he, he said, Ireland, your best days are ahead of you. And uh, one comedian quipped uh, a week later, reflecting on the speech, that's great, what do we do in the meantime? This picture in Revelation 21 begs the same question. Some of us, more acutely than others, feel the longing pangs for this revelation to be true. For a time when there would be no more sickness or mourning or crying or death. But the question looms, what do we do in the meantime? How do we occupy this in-between space? What quite literally on earth do we do while we wait? Revelation 21 verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I know some of you have heard me teach this before, but it's really important we get a tune-up uh, this morning. We need to apprentice ourselves to Jesus because of what we're invited into. I wonder, is it just me or do any of you find the last part of that verse kind of odd? Let me just read it again, see if you catch it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Like there's some crazy stuff happening there, right? And I don't quite understand what that's going to look like or involve, but it's fairly mega. It sounds kind of exciting, all sort of major, but then there's this little sentence at the end that doesn't make any sense to me, or at least didn't the first time I read it, and there was no longer any sea. 
I'd like to see, how about you? Like when I want to get my head shard and, you know, get a bit of peace, maybe even pray and maybe even connect with God, you know, Murloc Bay or White Park Bay, those places have been some pretty profound moments in talking to Jesus and why on earth in recreation would there be no sea? My first thought was that maybe John who's writing this is an aquaphobe, right? And some of his own stuff has made it into the text, right? So he's like imagining a future and he's afraid of water and he's like, no way. No sea. I mean, it would make sense if Paul wrote Revelation, right? Because he was shipwrecked three times. So he's like, there is definitely no chance of that when God remakes everything. Or, I mean, the other fact is that uh, scholars reckon that John who's writing this is actually like stuck on an island. And maybe the island's not very big. And he's just so bored with the tide in, out, tide in, out, tide in, out. He's like, no way, God. If, you're, if I'm writing this for you, I'm putting my bed in. There's no sea when you remake everything. Of course, there's something much more significant going on. When you understand what the sea represents to the Hebrew mind, things make a little bit more sense. To the Hebrew, the sea represents chaos. It's dark. It's unpredictable. Monsters lurk underneath it. It's dangerous. It's scary. The sea represents the opposite of God's goodness, his life, and his love. That's what the sea is. It's a metaphor for the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. And that's what John is saying in New Creation. That place where evil and ugliness and chaos lurks and lives is gone forever. There will be no longer any sea. Flip back to Matthew 14. This is a really uh, well-known passage of Scripture. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking there, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage at his eye, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked in the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Most of you probably know this story as Jesus walking on water. What if the much more profound lesson is Jesus standing on the sea? What if this isn't a moment of Jesus defying gravity, but standing on Satan? Remember, the sea represents the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. That's why in verse 26, the disciples' first thought is this is a ghost 
or a demon or a boogeyman. This is something that lurks in these kind of places that has come to get us to kind of bring it home to us. You have to imagine wandering through an ancient graveyard in a really dark, stormy night, covered in mist, with shadows and things lurking around. And even though you say you're not superstitious, you see something out of the corner of your eye and you're thinking, that's it, I'm doomed. That's what's happening to them on this boat journey. Jesus, in this moment, becomes the physical embodiment of a spiritual reality. Christ having dominion over Satan, sin, and death, the kingdom of God coming to earth. How often do we see miracles and miss their meaning? Jesus, in this moment, overcomes the chaos of evil, and we can too. There are sea- these guys are seasoned fishermen, skilled sailors, battling against the wind in the middle of a storm in the darkest hour of night. It says just before dawn. They've been struggling all night long against this wind, drenched through, exhausted. Can you imagine the moment? It's noisy, it's windy, the waves are rolling, and then somewhere out there you think you see someone and you're terrified to say something. You don't want to be that guy, right? So you just get fixated on what it looked like was kind of going on, trying to look around, see if anybody else saw it or are you losing your mind? And gradually everybody begins to see the same thing. And it says that these hardened fishermen, grown men, cry out in fear. When was the last time you heard a group of grown men cry out in fear? They literally think their lives have come to an end. And then from the storm, on the wind, a familiar voice comes to their ears. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. I wonder how many times has God spoken to you and you thought it was the opposite initially? You get a sense of something and your first impulse is fear and so you think, couldn't possibly be God. I want to really encourage you to turn into that voice. Those whispers in your soul that sometimes initially give birth to anxiety. It's just a really funny thing people say all the time whenever they think something isn't God. They say, I don't have a peace about it. I'm just going to be really honest with you. I don't remember a time God spoke to me that I felt peace about it. Usually it's disruptive. It's costly. It involves sacrifice. And usually everything in me wants to go, thank you, I'm out of here. If peace is our metric, I don't know if we hear his voice. They see him. They see him in the water and they're terrified. And then his voice comes. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. They realize it's Jesus, and their minds are blown. Like, what is, what is going on here? And if that's not cool enough, verse 28, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come on the water. And Jesus looks straight back and says, well, come on then. 
we usually think of this as like the pinnacle up until this moment of Peter and his great faith, his zealous faith. It's not actually what's going on if you understand how the rabbinical tradition and discipleship worked. You see, whenever Rabbi Jesus invited someone to follow him, Peter, what he was saying was, I believe that you can learn to live my life. Everything that I do is available to you. So Peter, in that mode, apprenticeship, sees Jesus walking on the water, standing on the sea, and says, well, if you, the master, can stand on the sea, then teach me, the apprentice, to do it too. So if it's really you, tell me to come. And Jesus says, well, come on then. Come on then. Not only is Jesus in this moment standing on the sea, he invites those that follow him to get out of the relative safety of the boat and join him there. The sea represents all that is broken in our community. Disconnection with God, relational breakdown in our lives and families, fear, insecurity, depression, loneliness, debt, unemployment, addiction, suicide, greed, the oppression and exploitation of the poor, sickness, drugs, domestic violence and abuse. That is what the sea represents. All of the evil and ugliness of the world is being made new and we are not supposed to be passively waiting for that someday to become today. We are invited to apprentice ourselves to Jesus and to learn, learn from him how to stand with him on the sea. Remember, there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve if we can learn how to join him standing on the sea. Verse 32 and 33 say, when they climbed back in the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worship him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. They didn't say this because he defied science. They said it because he defied Satan. That's what's just been demonstrated to them. You see, there is no Christian conference that can teach you to stand on the sea. There is no book, not even a course. There's only apprenticing yourself to Jesus. Matthew 28, Jesus sends his followers out and he tells them to go and make apprentices of the world, teaching people to live, think, and do life the way Jesus did. We are literally sent by Jesus to go and stand on the seas of our lives and families and communities. That is what apprenticeship is for. So I wonder this morning, what sea is he inviting you? What sea is he sending you to go and stand on? Please don't be confused that you can follow Jesus and stay in the boat. When his words come to us, they have this kind of paradox of come and go. Come to me and go to the world. Come to me and go to the world. Learning to hear from God, learning to dream with God, they will all lead you to a moment where Jesus invites you into the impossible. Basic apprenticeship. 
the impossible made possible. And this is as much about institutions as it is individuals. In fact, the transformation of our city is dependent upon you learning not just to stand on individual seas, but institutional ones as well. So how do we learn to stand on the sea? We've got like two minutes. James, can you come on back up? I wonder, do you know that the number of domestic abuse cases reported last year in Northern Ireland was the highest ever on record? Over 30,000 cases were reported. And anybody that works in that field will know that that is the tip of the iceberg. Because there's way more going on than gets reported. We've been talking about this sea, the sea of domestic abuse and domestic violence from the very beginning of our journey here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. And Yvette and her team are working incredibly hard in this particular area. You see, in the end, there will be no sea of domestic abuse or violence. But until that day, we have to listen to the voice of Jesus saying, come and go. I'm sending you to go and stand on that sea. So when you look out across the Lagan Valley area, I wonder what sea do you see? seas are present in your life right now? What seas are present in your business? What seas are present in your marriage or your family? What seas are present in your friends? The places that you live. We have to be prepared to get out of the boat and join him standing there. to hear him send us to stand in the sea. If you're able, will you stand? So my, my question for you this morning is not, is Jesus sending you to stand on the sea? It's what sea is he sending you to stand on? What sea is he sending you to stand on? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you now. Come.